The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good morning. Today, I don't know if you, you realize this, I'm a history buff, some would say nerd, uh, but today is the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So that's why I asked Jake to lead us in that song, because the Protestant Reformation is marked by the rediscovery of the true gospel, that we're not saved by Christ plus anything that were saved by Christ alone in his blood, his resurrection for us, and were saved by faith in believing in that, faith alone in Christ alone. Those were the, the slogans of the Reformation. So that's, that's true Christianity. That's, that's not something that was just uh, came to be in, in the 1500s. That's what the Apostle Paul taught. That's what Jesus taught. It's Christ alone who saves. Well, if you will, I invite you to turn to John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 20 to 24. This is Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And she asked him a question in verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would instruct our hearts now in the power of the Holy Spirit, that your word would be a light unto our path to guide us on the road of life. We pray, Lord, that we would worship you as we learn your truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As Christ's followers in Christ's church, it is so important that we understand what Jesus says about how we are to worship him. And Jesus gives one of the most profound summaries of biblical worship right here to this Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four. We've been looking at this for the past few weeks, and we've seen a number of principles that Jesus has laid out for us regarding true worship. One of them is the universality of worship, that every single person is a worshiper. 
Another is the fact that we are to worship God and God alone. Notice the number of times that Jesus references worshiping the Father. He says in verse 23, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. God and God alone is to be the object of our worship. We also have seen that Christ, in Christ alone, is the mediator of our worship. And this is so important for you to understand and for us to understand that only by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can any person worship Christ properly. Can any person worship God properly? You know, in the Old Testament, if you wanted to worship God properly, what would you have to do? You'd have to take a lamb or a goat, and you'd have to go to the tabernacle or the temple, and then the priest would sacrifice that lamb for you, and only through that sacrifice and that atonement could you then worship God. Well, Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and it's only through his cleansing blood that we can come into the presence of God and worship him truly this morning. Christ's blood and his righteousness is enabling us to worship God. And that's what it means that he's the sole mediator of worship. And then we saw the supremacy of worship, that the highest thing that we can do is worship God in this life, that God made us to worship him because the highest thing in the heart of God is his glory and his honor. That's the supremacy of worship. And in the past few weeks, we've been looking at the requirements of worship. What does God require of us to worship? Well, it's so instructive. Jesus tells us, if you look at verse 23, look at verse 23, he says, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers, this is uh, opposed to the false worshipers. These are the true worshipers. And what are the requirements that he says? They will worship the Father, how? In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And we've argued that by spirit, we mean our soul, our uh, spiritual nature. And the reason for that is found in verse 24. He says, God is spirit. He says, God is a spiritual being. He's transcendent. Therefore, if we're going to worship a spiritual God, we have to worship him with our own spirit. And can we worship God however we want to? Has anybody ever worshiped God however they wanted to? No. God has always given specific instructions about how he is to be worshiped. Just don't believe me, just go read the book of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Very specific instructions, and the same is true in the New Testament. There's specific instructions about how we are to worship God, and that is to be according to the truth of who he is and the proper uh, forms that he's given us to worship him. So in light of this fact that Jesus has said that we are to worship in spirit and truth, we've been looking at the past few weeks these requirements of worship, and we've seen really a plethora of false expressions of worship, false expressions of worship. And I don't have time to go through the ones we've covered so far, but we've covered formalism, commercialism, radicalism, and pragmatism. So those are the, the first four that we've covered, and this morning we're going to cover the final two, and we're going to finish the requirements of worship. The final two we're going to look at are theatricalism and emotionalism. Theatricalism and emotionalism. Now, theatricalism is the conduct of worship for the purpose of entertainment, 
for the purpose of entertainment. In theatricalism, worship becomes a performance. It's a production. It's theatrics. Everything's on a timer. Everybody's playing their part. The worship leaders become actors. The sanctuary becomes a theater. Many of them are even built to look like a theater. And the worship becomes a show. And what was intent to honor God becomes a spectacle. Many churches even use the language of entertainment. So you talk about what we call an order of worship, and order of worship is, okay, this is what we're going to go through. This is the order of how we're going to worship God. You know what many churches call that? A set list. Set list. The platform is a stage. The worship leaders are performers. We no longer have preachers. We have speakers. And before the worship service, the speaker and the performers are where? In a green room. It's just, just like you're going on The Tonight Show, right? Now, why is this the case? Well, it's because we live in a culture that has become obsessed with entertainment. Our culture is an entertainment culture. Who are the most popular people in our culture? The most influential people in our culture? Entertainers, pop stars. And so many have said, if we're going to compete with that, if the church is going to try and compete with the cultural masses, we've got to entertain people. After all, this is a culture that loves entertainment. Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And this is a quote. He said, Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. And so what has happened is, is many evangelical leaders have said, well, if we're going to compete in that culture for uh, the attention of people, then we've got to start doing the same thing. We've got to start entertaining them. We've got to do something to get them here and to amuse them and to, you know, if we're going to compete with uh, the, the movies and the celebrities, we got to do something big. And that's how this whole entertainment mindset has entered the church. And what am I talking about by this, you know, expressions of entertainment? I'm talking about uh, people up dancing. I'm talking about rock bands. Uh, when I was in Kentucky, I heard a story of a pastor uh, he was a new pastor. When he was introduced to the church, the church didn't know where he was. Guess where he was? He was up in the rafters. And he rappelled down to an ACDC song to introduce himself to the congregation. When I was in Dallas, uh, a pastor in Dallas did a whole series on drones Drones, I mean, drones had just come out. Drones were the theme of the series. And during this, you know, you would be sitting there and he would have drones flying around the auditorium. This, just this past Sunday, I'm talking about seven days ago, a church in Florida, I saw this uh, this past week, called Church by the Glades, uh, had a whole performance done by, I would add, women in immodest clothes of rolling on the river. 
You know the old uh, Credence song? Rolling on the river in their service, wearing immodest clothes. I mean, can you imagine the men that are showing up to that service and are watching that? I say service, it's not even a worship service, it's a, it's a spectacle. And the young teenage boys that have showed up and are watching this, have you ever read the beginning of Revelation and seen those seven churches that Jesus addresses? What would Jesus say to the American church? What would he say? Because what we call worship has so far departed from any actual expression of the worship of the living God. When the children of Israel were on the mountain, right by Mount Sinai, they didn't even want to hear God's voice. They said, because we can't, we can't stand before this living God. We want God to talk to Moses and then for Moses to talk to us. We have forgotten the holiness of God and the awesome majesty of who God is. And this downward spiral of entertainment has been going on really for the past 150, 200 years. I'm just gonna give you some quotes that mark the progression of it. This is Charles Spurgeon, 130 years ago, 1887. Now, I imagine the type of entertainment that he's referencing is probably a little different from Church by the Glades, but this is what he said 130 years ago. He said, the extent to which sheer frivolity and utterly inane amusement have been carried on in connection with some places of worship would almost exceed belief. There can be no doubt that all sorts of entertainments, as nearly as possible approximating to stage plays, have been carried on in connection with places of worship and are at this present time in high favor. Can these things promote holiness or help in communion with God? Can men come away from such things and plead with God for the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of believers? Answer, no. A.W. Tozer said this in the 1950s. He said, the church that can't worship must be entertained. And men who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. This was a common thing just here in America 70 years ago. And I came across a quote this week. This is David Jeremiah from 2019. He said, the church is coming under attack It's forgotten what the church is supposed to be. We're not an entertainment service. We're not here to see how close we can get to what the world does. But there's so much of the world in the church and vice versa that we can't tell a difference. We can't tell a difference. Let me give you three quick reasons why we must not turn to entertainment in the worship service. First, the worship service, and what I'm talking about, the worship service, I'm not talking about an evangelistic program, I'm talking about what we're doing right now. The worship service is primarily for the worship of God by believers. It's primarily for the believer, for the worship of God, and then the edification of those believers. So the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 24, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another 
those one another's, if you look, that those are always in reference to believers. He says, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So the meeting together on the Lord's day is to be primarily done by who? The believers. And of course, we welcome any unbelievers to come in. We, we welcome them to attend our service. But the primary objective of this worship service isn't an evangelistic event. The primary objective is to worship God in the fellowship of the saints. That's what we're primarily here to do. Paul says that the role of pastors in Ephesians 4.12, pastor teachers, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. When do they do that? Through the preaching and teaching of God's word on Sundays. So that's the, the role of the worship service. And what happens is, if you get that wrong, you will kill the church. If you get the point of the worship service wrong, you will kill the church. When I was a boy, I was in a church in Dallas, and the church was thriving. The church was doing Bible exposition. The church was making disciples. But some of the elders in that church decided that we weren't reaching enough people. And they read Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church, and they said, what we got to do is we have to cater the worship service to the lost people. That's what we need to do. And that group essentially gained power in that church. And then when the senior pastor retired, they called a pastor who wanted to do just that. And what happened is, is all the believers left. And the church essentially died. It's still there. I went by and visited a couple years ago, and the pastor was up on the roof trying to fix the air conditioner. That's not a good sign. <laughs> when you got the pastor up on the roof with a wrench, you're not in a good place. Although I think Kenny could probably fix an air conditioner with a wrench. So you got to get, you have to understand what a lot of churches are doing, quite frankly, is entertaining the goats. They're not, and anybody that gets saved in a church that's entertainment oriented, they're leaving out the back door. And they're going, a believer is going to find a faithful church that's worshiping God in the correct way. Second reason why we must not resort to entertainment, the apostolic method was never to cater to the whims of unbelieving men and women. Never. They never catered to the whims of unbelieving men and women. Just go read Acts 17. You know, when, when Paul's on Mars Hill, you know, when they invite him to stand up, does he call uh, some, some juggling gospel bears to come out and perform to get people's attention? Was he wearing some nice sandals, some air Jerusalems to impress to impress people and just say, you know, look, look how great I am. Look at the swag that, that I'm wearing. No. What he did is he said, hey, I saw a statue down there, and it said to an unknown God, let me tell you about the God who is. And oh, by the way, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready? That's what he said. There weren't any gimmicks. There wasn't any, let me try and entertain you. Let me show you this. This is what Paul says firsthand, turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. So instructive what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2. And I want to 
look at verses three through five. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive. In other words, our message is about the truth. It's not theatrics. It's not a show. There's no deception. There's no smoke and mirrors. There's no uh, smoke machines and, and cast members. It's about the truth. And then in verse four, he says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but please God who tests our hearts. He says, look, this message that we've been entrusted with has been entrusted to us by God. Therefore, we don't have the authority to change the message. We can't alter the message to entertain or make people feel better about themselves. The message is given to us by God. And therefore, our work isn't to please men. That verb is a present participle. It means ongoing activity. In other words, I carry out my ministry every day, not for the purpose of pleasing men, but for the purpose of pleasing God. In other words, when I'm preaching, I'm not worried about what people think. I'm worried about what Christ thinks, what God thinks. That's what's most important to me. And, and friends, listen to me very clearly. This is the single most important distinction between man-centered worship and God-centered worship. It, it is. That this is the continental divide in every church. Are you trying to please men, or are you trying to please God? That's the question. And then notice what he says right there. This is so startling, especially to me as a minister of the gospel. He says, we please God who tests our hearts. We please God who tests our hearts. That word test Dokio Mazo, you could translate it evaluation. We please God who evaluates our hearts. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight when he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, "Let a person Dokio Mazo examine himself or test himself, then so eat the bread and drink of the cup." What he's talking about with the test is an evaluation of validity. In other words, God is going to test the metal of our hearts. God knows the heart. That's 1 Samuel 6, 16, 7, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He is going to test us. You know, I was a serious commander at Paris Island. We tested the recruits. The final culminating event of recruit training was called the crucible. It was three days without sleep. And if you could make it through the crucible, we would march back, and only then would they pin on the eagle globe and anchor on your collar. Why? Because you had proven yourself. As a Marine, you'd pass the test. What do they do with the Navy SEALs? You go through buds, but what happens at the end? Remember? Hell week. You got to make it through Hell Week to have the title of a Navy SEAL. You got to pass the test. 
This is what Paul's saying is that God tests the hearts. He looks into our hearts to see what our motives actually are in our worship and in our ministries. Is it to please men or to please God? Robert Murray McShane, who was a pastor in the 1800s, said this. He says, you've never preached Christ until you preach Christ for Christ's sake. In other words, if, you, if you're worshiping for your sake, if you're, you're out for your own honor, your own glory, you haven't even begun to preach Christ yet. And then Paul punctuates it. If you look at verse five, he says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. We weren't in it for money. We weren't in it to impress you. And then he said, God is witness. God knows our hearts. God is the one who tests us. So that's the second reason. The third reason why we shouldn't resort to entertainment is why would you ever seek to entertain when we have the Lord Jesus Christ to offer people? Amen. Why would, if you are trying to entertain people, what it means is that you have lost sight of the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul said in Colossians 1.28, I mean, what, what is the definition of his ministry? We've been looking at this as elders, how Paul conducted his ministry. Paul says in Colossians, it's very simple what I do. He says, him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. How could you possibly seek to entertain when you have the Lord Jesus Christ in his forgiveness of sins and the free grace that he offers people? How could you resort to anything else? Christ and Christ alone is the one who leads us into maturity, to sanctification. Christ and Christ alone satisfies. Do you think people are satisfied by entertainment? No. It's a quick fix. It might get people back in the door, but it won't satisfy their soul. Only Christ can satisfy the human heart. Only Christ. Christ is the greatest answer in the world. So why would we offer anybody anything less? Anything short of Christ is gospel malpractice on the part of a gospel minister. So that's theatricalism. And the final error in worship that we're gonna look at this morning is closely related to theatricalism and that is emotionalism, emotionalism. Now, I want to caveat this because this is really important and it's really easy to misunderstand what I'm going to say because God made us with emotions. God made us to have affections. And affections in the Christian life are supremely important. Your emotions 
in your love for the Lord Jesus Christ and your affection for him is paramount. That's one of the ways that you know that you're an actual believer is that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but that you love him. So it's important that we have affections. If you don't have any affections for Christ, I would say that you're not a Christian. You should have affections. But our affections must be stirred by who Christ is. Our affections and our emotions must be stirred by the truth of God. It's the truth first and then the emotions regarding about who God is, those follow after. We are to be stirred by the character of God and the revealed truth that he's given. I mean, when, when we preach Christ and the forgiveness of sins that he has given us as a free gift, that should pull on your heartstrings. And that's a good thing. Those are good emotions in the Christian life. But here's the subtlety of what has happened often in worship. Rather than getting to the emotion as a response to God and as a response to Christ and as a response to the gospel, people have started to use artificial means to get you to the emotional response. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm going to get an emotional response, some type of emotional decision but it's not gonna be from the truth, it's not gonna be from who Christ is, it's gonna be because we lower the lights, we have a piano just serenading in the back, and we have some fog machines. And then people are naturally going to be a little bit more emotional. And by the way, we're gonna turn the colors in the auditorium, fuchsia and seafoam green and other more emotive colors because what we're trying to do is provoke that emotional response from people. Does that make sense? So it's the emotional response, but it does a bypass around the truth. And it's getting the emotional response a different way. Let me give you an example of this. So in the second great awakening, people were preaching out in the, the over the, Appalachian Mountains in Kentucky, and what started to happen is thousands and thousands of people started to come to Christ. People would just stand up on wagons, and people would come from miles around, and there would be great emotional responses to the gospel. And people would fall down on their faces in tears, broken over their sin, and repenting, and all those sorts of things. Well, what happened as the revival went by and the years went by, as people said, okay, this, we, we've seen that emotional response in conversion. And the emotional responses stopped happening because the Holy Spirit doesn't always work in the same way. The, mo- the emotional responses stopped happening years later like they were at the beginning of the awakening. And so some of the preachers got together and they said, you, you know what we need to start doing? We, we gotta start doing things that manipulate the response we were seeing 15 years ago. And so Charles Finney and some others developed what they called the anxious bench. Have any of y'all ever heard of the anxious bench? Or any of y'all know what an anxious bench is? An anxious bench would be 
some benches right up near the podium where the preacher was speaking. And the preacher would have people watching the congregation and someone that they thought might be having a tinge of emotion. They would tap on the shoulder and usher them down to the anxious bench and then have them sit at the anxious bench. And essentially, the preacher would then preach for a decision until everyone on the anxious bench made a decision. And they would drum up the music and all those sorts of things. And, and then they would call on those people in front of everybody there. I mean, if you're being pressured, right, in front of 2,000 people and you're sitting on the anxious bench, everybody's like, get up, make a decision. What do you think you're going to do? Well, I guess, I guess I'll go forward and make some sort of decision, right? It's drumming up that emotional response. And I've seen this. I was part of a church one time. And, 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 and listen, I'm not against per se, an altar call. But what I am against is what this pastor did. He said, and this was my pastor, and I love, love the dear brother. He's a good man. But he said, we're not going to leave here until somebody comes up front and makes a decision. Well, <laughs> people want to go to lunch. They're like, well, man, like, I, will you go up? Man, I've already got, you know, somebody's got to go up. And, and no kidding, one time I did an altar call in this church, and I came down here and I did the altar call, and not a soul came forward. Not a soul came forward. And that's fine. No, no issues there, you know? And then one dear brother finally did come forward, and I asked him, I said, why did you come forward? And he leaned over, and he goes, someone had to do it. <laughs> This is the old game of American evangelicalism, and I think you've seen how it has manifested itself. It just, it comes with that manipulation of the emotions to get a decision, and you often see it building campaigns when churches are trying to raise money. Let's drum up the emotionalism. We're trying to get this, you know, spontaneous baptisms, that's a thing. You know, oh, don't you want to be baptized? You know, we've seen all these other people be baptized. You, you spontaneously make this uh, emotive decision to be baptized. You see this all the time. Now, here's the deal, and this is so important I want to show you. Jesus never manipulated the emotions. He never manipulated the emotions. In fact, if he thought that you were making an emotional decision, he would confront it and stop you in your tracks. It's almost frightening. Now, he, he, he welcomed an emotional response if it was for the right reason. But he wanted to make sure it was for the right reason. Let me show you this. This is Luke 24. Turn to the left to Luke 24. beginning in verse 25. Or sorry, when I say Luke 24, Luke 14. Luke 14, verse 25. Now look at this statement that Luke makes right there at the beginning of verse 25. He said, now great crowds accompanied him. 
Great crowds accompanied Jesus. Now, I want you to stop right there and think, if you were to go to most evangelical churches and say, you've got great crowds coming, what would be the response? Well, apparently we're doing something right. We need to start doing more of what we have been doing. Moreover, we should probably write a book about what we've been doing and offer consulting to other churches so that they can get the same crowds that we've gotten, right? No, that's not what Jesus does. Look how Jesus responds to the great crowds, this emotional uproar that is surrounding him. He turns to them, he turns around, and he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now this expression, hate, his brother or sisters, this is a Jewish idiom which means to love less. He's saying, compared to me, your love for your father and mother and your wife, your children, and even yourself has to be almost a hate in comparison to me. That's how superior your love for Christ is to be over the love of your family members and yourself. And if not, if you don't love me that way, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. And by the way, a disciple is someone who's saved. This isn't some higher tier Christianity. This is the bare minimum to enter the kingdom of God. He says, if you don't love me, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now look what he says. He ups the ante even more in verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Now when he's saying bear his own cross, he's not speaking about the cross in a mystical, metaphorical way like we often do. You know, I'm, I'm having to bear my cross. I've got a really tough boss at work or I'm having uh, issues with my children or I'm having to care for one of my parents. That's the cross that I'm bearing right now. No, 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 no. Everybody that heard Jesus would have known exactly what he was talking about because they had all seen probably many crucifixions because the Romans crucified people all the time, all the time. Everybody had seen people crucified on the roadside. So they knew exactly what Jesus meant. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must be willing at the drop of a hat to give your life for me. You remember Casey Burnell at Columbine High School? Uh, the, guy, the shooters came in and they found her and they said, are you a Christian? She said, yes, will you renounce Christ? She said, no. And they shot her. You have to be willing and ready at the drop of a hat, Jesus is saying, to give your life for him. That is true discipleship. And then he says, verse 28, and, and, and notice how Jesus is confronting the emotionalism. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. He's saying, look, don't, 
don't make an emotional decision to come be my disciple. In fact, you need to sit down and like a building contractor, you need to count the cost. Do I have enough money? Do I have enough supplies to actually complete this? Am I really ready to be Jesus' disciple? Do I really trust Christ with all of my heart, soul, mind, or strength? Because Jesus says, verse 29, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. It, it's, it's a mockery to begin to follow Christ and later on begin to stop. Just like it's a mockery to begin a building and then fail to complete it. And the history of the world is strewn with people who started to build that tower of faith, but then later on abandoned it and it crumbled. Strewn with professions of, of faith and then people who later abandoned that profession. And Jesus mentions these types of people in the parable of the sower. You remember Jesus talks about the seed that fell on the path, the hard path, and that's the seed that Satan immediately plucks up he talks about the seed that falls on the good soil and bears much fruit, but remember there's two soils in between. Remember what they are? The rocky soil and the thorny soil. And he says regarding the rocky soil, he says, they are the ones on the rock who when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. There's an emotional response to the gospel. But these have no root. They believe for a while, but in the times of testing... They fall away. They fall away when the test comes. What happened? They weren't true believers. They made an emotional response, but there was never actually saving faith. And the same is true with the thorny soil. They fall away as well. Why? Because they are choked by the cares and riches and the pleasures of life. They get caught up with the trappings of the world, and they say, look, I'd rather have, I'd rather have what the world offers than Christ. I'd rather have that than follow him. And to reiterate this point, Jesus says the same thing in verse 31. If you look at verse 31, he says, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus is saying that the good king that's going out to war doesn't go all brave heart, where he immediately paints his face and charges off into battle. What does the good king do? He Eisenhower's it. He plans. He deliberates. He strategizes. He says, do we have enough troops, and do we have them in the right place to actually pull this off, or do we not? There's, there's a deliberation involved. Then he says in verse 33, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Listen to that. I will not allow for an emotive spur of the moment decision. 
you have to count the cost. Will you, re- will you be willing to renounce all that you have for me? And if you won't, you can't be my disciple. And that message that Jesus says here is just so counter what so many have heard in American churches. Where people have said, look, Jesus is just going to be that life coach that adds on to your dreams and ambitions just this element of salvation. And nothing needs to happen to receive what Christ has done. There needs to be no repentance. You just need to make some sort of profession of faith. There's no actual cost involved. And Jesus will add on to your carnal life salvation. No. Jesus demands that we be willing to repent of our sin and follow him and give up everything, renounce everything. That is saving faith. That's the trust that he requires. It's a call to renounce even who we are, our old life, our old ambitions, our old loves, the American dream. He calls us to take up our crosses and follow him. And here's the thing. When you do, your emotions will follow. Your emotions will come. But they will be right emotions and right affections. You know, most Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., I don't feel like worshiping. Anybody here with me? I mean, you just come in and you're just like, man, I just need, I'm just trying to wake up. And it's, you know, it's, we're here, and it's, it's 9.15, and, and we're singing a couple hymns, and I'm just like, man, I don't feel like worshiping. But you know what happens? The truth comes, and then you experience Christ, and then the worship happens. And when you get that order right, when you get that order right, you can worship whatever the emotion, because it's getting to the truth and then knowing that the affections, the emotions will come. This is why Job, when Job had all of his family, all of his possessions taken away, what, what type of emotion do you think he was feeling? How was he doing internally? Bad, really bad. But what was his response? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His response was still worship because he knew the truth. He didn't need an emotion to worship. He went to the truth and then he could worship and get to the proper affection and emotion. There was a young woman named Barbara Yoderin and her husband Roger was one of the missionaries that was killed by the Aka Indians with Jim Elliott. Does anybody remember Jim Elliott and the missionaries that flew down on a plane in South America uh, to reach this tribe that had never been reached before with the gospel? Never been reached. And they had been dropping pamphlets and all these things, and they finally landed the plane right along a river. And for a while, people were coming, and they were talking to them. But then later on in the day, some warriors came, uh, basically out of the bush and speared 
all of the missionaries, killed all of them right there in that river. That was 1961. Now, Barbara Yoderin, her wife, or her husband, Roger, was one of those men, and this is what she wrote in her journal when she found out about the death of her husband. She said, tonight, the captain told us of his finding four bodies in the river. One had T-shirt and blue jeans. Raj was the only one who wore them. Now notice how she goes to the truth. God gave me this verse two days ago. Psalm 84, 14, quote, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death, end quote. And then she says this, as I came face to face with the news of Roger's death, my heart was filled with praise. My heart was filled with praise. He was worthy of his home going. Help me, Lord, to be both a mommy and a daddy. Now, who can worship in a moment like that? People who are trained and have trained themselves to worship in response to the truth. She doesn't need an emotive keyboard in the background. She doesn't need smoke or any type of thing to manipulate her emotions. What she needs is the word of God and the presence of God. And in that moment, she worshiped, a genuine expression of worship. And that's my prayer for me, that's my prayer for my family, my kids, and for each of you, is that you would know God and that you would know his word and that your entire life would be a continual act of true worship. Not manipulated, but as a result and effect of who God is. Because you see God, you walk with God, you know his truth. And when difficult times come, you don't abandon God, you praise him, you worship him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we love you. We do with all of our hearts, with all of our true affections, our true emotions. We praise you. And our desire is to worship you truly, regardless of the circumstances in our lives. We want to see you glorified. We want to see the lost come to know you through the gospel. We want to see awakening. We want to see people praising you who have never praised you before. But Lord, we, we pray that this would begin in our hearts, that we would worship you in spirit and truth, that we would not resort to entertainment or emotivism, but that we would seek you for who you really are. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.